there's no more tears to cry, Danny. The, the well's dried up. Um, I'm a bit more positive this year than I am, you know, last year about the situation that we're in. Only because, you know, it's just there's only certain things you can control. And there's no point beating yourself up about you know, the things that you can't. So I'm trying to stay optimistic. Today on Dirty Linen, we are chatting to an old friend, Attila Yilmaz from Pazar Food Collective in Sydney, in Canterbury. So that is the West. We're hearing a lot about Sydney's West at the moment, but I want to hear it from Attila. How are you doing, mate? Well, yeah, nah. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're in sort of no man's land at the moment. And we're just really in limbo and... You know, myself and the other hospitality operators I'm speaking with today, really just waiting for this announcement to see what sort of assistance and what sort of package we're going to get to hopefully keep our doors open. Yeah, it's um, it you're certainly in the thick of it. It's really it's there's obviously so much uncertainty around the length of the lockdown. You know which direction it's going in, and of course the assistance that may or may not be coming. Tell me um, how hard things have been for you over the past three weeks. Well, essentially, we we went into lockdown um, a week before they announced the lockdown. Uh, yeah, the moment uh, we we had that <clears throat> spread happening in the eastern suburbs, we lost eighty uh, percent of our bookings in the first couple of days, and then everyone just started cancelling before then. You know, although we are in sort of the, the we're at the sort of the beginning of the west, you know, slash inner west. Um, most of our customers come from the eastern suburbs, city fringe. Uh, they make up probably eighty percent of our, our customer base. So, yeah, we've been. It's been tough. Um, so we've had no, nothing coming in, pretty much from then. Um, mm. We also lost a lot of our staff as well because they were working their secondary or, or, or tertiary jobs in uh, areas that were named as. Um, as hot zones, so some had to isolate until they got tested. Um, yeah, and also the you know the nervousness around public transport and all that it just very made it very very difficult for us to even get the doors open, if, even if we wanted to. Did you? I mean, how did you feel about it at the time? Did you think you know that this was something that you were going to just be able to ride through in a, in a, in a week or so, or did you feel like something big was brewing? No, no, this, yeah, this, this felt a lot different to last year. Uh, similar in some ways, but, but a lot different. I, my, my gut instinct said, and I, I said it to my staff, I said, uh, be prepared. That I, I, I think this is going to lead to a, a, a either short, sharp lockdown or, um, or something a bit more long term. But either way, this is going to, this is going to spread and it's going to spread fast. Uh, right. Well, seeing as you were, you know, you could see into the future then. What do you think is going to happen next? Um, I, my, my prediction is uh, that they'll announce these packages and, you know, to whatever extent they will be. My guess is that they will follow what yeah, you guys did down there in Melbourne, going to um, a short, sharp and harsher restrictions, which I, I truly believe should have happened from day one. Um, you know, the, the first thing that needs to be done with this, and you guys have, have, have proved it, that if you lock down areas and restrict travel, it stops the virus from travelling. Um, I have no doubt that we have this virus now travelling out to the west because 
a lot of our uh, you know, migrant workers, visa holders, and so forth live out this in this uh, these areas, but predominantly work in the city and the eastern suburbs in hospitality and other sectors, um, and we're forced to work really to put food on the table. Yeah, it's all very well to tell people to stay home, but they've got to eat. Correct. And also when you've got employers saying, we need you at work, um, you're essential to our business, no, you know, not necessarily an essential service, but essential to our business. Which, um, and that's, that's the other thing that's really confusing a lot of people in Sydney is that, that they just will not get to the point and answer the question is what is essential service, what is the definition of an essential service, and what isn't. Um, and, and today just added more more confusion uh, as far as I'm concerned in the press conference. Uh, I didn't see what happened. So we're chatting on Tuesday. I didn't see the press conference today, but what did what did you hear, hear in that? Uh, so, again, you know, the media puts the question, can you please define what essential service is? And the, the, the government, uh, you know, and Hazard, they're not willing to put a definition to it. Uh, his words were that, you know, an essential service, is if you're essential to that business to run, then you know, that could be classified as essential. But, you know, with all due respect, I, I have a restaurant. Uh, it's essential that we make money and turn a profit. Sure. Am I an essential service? No. We're a luxury. We're a luxury item. You know, there are, we're not selling raw produce. We're not a, a, we are providing people with a luxury service. You know, um, and, I, you know, I'm willing to shut down and willing to do everything we need to do to, to stop this from happening, even if it means, you know, it takes, it takes me years to recover. I don't care. It just We have to do the right thing, but they need to, to come up with a clear definition and, you know, so people understand. It's it is confusing people in Melbourne as well. I would say because we we did. I mean, look, the lots of mistakes made here, and it certainly took us a while to get things under control. And you know, the restrictions did um, keep being adjusted. But uh, yeah, like evidently we got to something that did work. And yeah, we all know it wasn't del- the Delta variant, but still. But that's really interesting that you're saying that even takeaway food is something that you'd be prepared to let go of because we did. We had pretty clear definitions on what were essential businesses, what was allowed to keep trading and under what circumstances. But takeaway food was always allowed, always part of the picture. Um, and it has been in most jurisdictions around the world. But it's interesting that you're, you're uh, yeah, prepared to let that go. Oh, yeah, I mean, I haven't, done ta- I haven't done takeaway this time around for the pure and simple reason that it, it appears that this Delta variant is highly contagious. Um, it was spreading fast and... You know, to, to run the risk uh, of my staff getting it by travelling on public transport to try and get here, then spreading it to other staff members, family and our patrons just wasn't worth it for me. Uh, the, the other fact is that because I am a destination restaurant, you know, only 20% of my business is local, um, we know from experience last year that as soon as they started naming hot zones, that we would go from doing 60, 70 orders a night down to four or five orders a night. And it's just not practical. Um, you know, this year, you know, I put in contingency plans last year when we came out of this, that if we ever went into this again, that we would be able to get by for a few weeks and I'd be able to look after my staff. Right? Because the, the reality was that most weeks we were operating and operating a loss and I was operating a loss just to keep my staff employed and in a job and, and active. Uh, this time round, you know, I'm only in a small independent. We've, we've struggled 
struggled all year, but I still managed to put something aside and try to raise money in other ways to support you know the staff that I've got and keep this team this time round um, without putting them at jeopardy. Wow. And, I mean, how long is that war chest of yours going to last? Um, I've got a five-week contingency in place, you know, um, but I was able to switch that on pretty much and say, right, this is what we can do right from the start and we, we'll be able to handle it. Um, and I'm in communicate with, with all my staff. And look, I'm not massive. I've only got 12 staff at the moment, but they're all dear and near to me. It's taken us a long time to build those staff back up again after losing almost, you know, all of them last year. Um, you know, for me to pay out of my own pocket for a little while is worth far more than losing them and having them to try and find staff in this market, which is n- damn near impossible, and then have to retrain, um, you know, looking after them now far outweighs the cost of having to rehire in the future. And I, w- I was confident that we would have, after seeing what happened in Melbourne, that we would have a package in place that would that assist them anyway. It's just taken too. It's just taken too long for them to come out and say what you know what is going to happen. Um, what business assistance there's going to be. Yeah, and also for these individuals, I know you've put out an amazing amount of information on all my workers. They've been, they've been trying to get onto it, um, all been on hold for in excess of two hours, three hours. Um, some of it had to be have been rejected. They're calling again, trying to get on. Um, you know, some have called on the second or third occasion and spoken with someone reasonable, and then managed to get, you know, get uh, get assistance. But um, Oh, that is, I mean, that's such an instructive story and I certainly heard that from the Victorian experience, but I would encourage, yeah, all visa holders and all employees that have lost hours, no matter what their visa status, um, that they are eligible for the COVID disaster payment so long as they have lost hours. Uh, so, yeah, please do ring and keep ringing. But, I mean, I would have, I, I can understand the wait because I'm sure there are thousands of people trying to get through and, and get that sorted. Sydney is such a huge city um but i'm surprised and disappointed that um services australia hasn't got their systems in place and that the people that are answering the phone aren't um aren't up to speed on what people are eligible for no it's, it's not only that you know, like I, your information by far has been the clearest that you've posted up on your own socials you know i've been to their website my staff have been especially from non-english speaking background to get on there and to read it, it, it some of it just doesn't make sense it's not 100% clear, um, you know, and then you read what's on the website and you see what's in the papers today and it's totally, there's two there's different messages getting around. So, you know, we're, we're all eagerly sitting, waiting for, for the next press conference and the announcements to come out and to say that this is what um, the deal is, but it's just, it doesn't seem to be happening. Yeah, it is. Uh, I just, I'm so triggered by the Sydney lockdown. It's really, you know, it's a year ago that Melbourne um, went into our lockdown, which ended up being, I don't know, some, was it like, I don't know how long it was. It was a, just, 121 days or something. Yeah, it? felt, I, I don't know what it yeah. felt like, but um, I can't even, I can't really remember it, but I have this really uh, sort of teary, tight chested, also some sort of energised, very frayed and kind of catatonic feeling about it About it when I try to not think about it. But, yeah, the Sydney situation is certainly throwing me back into it. And what you're saying also throws me, throws me back into 
that whole thing about the information, like you're just, you're overloaded with information, but it's not necessarily the information that you need. You're waiting for more information, but the information is coming out of this environment of such uncertainty that if, you know, you're looking for certainty and it's just not really there, uh, which is partly just the situation that we're all in with a global pandemic and, you know, things just do change, but uh, it is so hard to, especially for you as an employer, you know, it's so hard to be that leader and that, you know, that person that people look to, but there just isn't, that's, you just can't offer them certainty. And that, that's the thing. I mean, you know, we say leader, I, I, I try to be a leader to my staff and I know most employers do, but we look to leadership as well. And when we see it not happening, we see lip service day after day. And it's, it's, I, I could almost tell you what they're going to say each day. It's, Prescripted. It's uh, there's so much spin doctoring. You know, when when someone is asked it, you know, I, from my policing days, um, you know, twelve years in there, I, you learn very quickly when someone is telling a lie. Um, you know, as soon as a question is asked, when they when the politicians start that answer with a, can I just say, or can I firstly thank? If I hear that again one more time, I'm going to lose my absolute brain. Every time they do that, they're just giving themselves time to think of an answer, of a way to dodge around what the real answer is because they just don't have the answers. That's the truth. You know, and we'd all rather just sit here and hear that. I don't have the answer. This, this time around, this is a lot different here, Danny. The feeling is last year compared to this year, last year was a walk in the park. This, this is real. Last year didn't feel this way, and that's not just me. It's a consensus from a lot of my colleagues in the industry that this this is um, horrible compared to last year. Oh, I'm really, really sorry and sad to hear you say that, Attila, but what is it that feels different? What is it that makes this situation that much harder? The, well, the there is the, the the lack of information that's coming out is so slow. It's and um, it's knee jerk. You know we're not getting ahead and we're not uh, attacking this head on where we should. We're trying to make everybody happy when realistically we should. Ju- they should just take a stance. You're never going to make anyone happy in this situation, but start at the top and work your way back. Go with a harsh lockdown, go with strict conditions. And all of us, all of the colleagues that I've spoken to, all the people in the industry and, and, and in the beauty and hairdressing industry as well I've been in, in, in communicating with, they've all said they would have preferred a sharp, short lockdown in the beginning, go in hard, try and stem this, and then work your way backwards. But it's like we just keep escalating as, as the situation escalates and it doesn't. it's just not going to work that way. It, it needs to be cut off somewhere somehow and and you know um it's unfair and i I tell you western sydney feels like they're being targeted the 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 western sydney now feels like they are to blame for the you know for the start of what is being called the real pandemic why Um, do you you know when you see police well i mean the, the, the just the application of police resources you know i've seen it myself they're out and about, and we encourage it, and we welcome the, the police into our establishments, you know, especially those of us that are doing the right thing. There are a lot that aren't doing the right thing, and I can see why they need to be out. Um, you know, well, myself, I, I, I witnessed a middle-aged woman on a, on a rainy day. It's pissing down rain. She's getting a Range Rover washed. She's got the little dog tucked under her arm, leopard skin, uh, active wear, purple top, big hair, full makeup. I see her getting dropped off by her friend 
getting kissing goodbye, getting into a you know freshly detailed Range Rover on a day when it's it's bucketing down rain. You know, it's it's these sort of things that that they need to crack down on. Um, and, and, but you know, the, the community feeling was, and at first, and maybe still is, I the Western Sydney's copped it harder as far as you know policing and. And, and controlling people's behaviours than the eastern suburbs did when this all started. Um, you know, when Bondi seemed like it was busier than ever um, and, and people couldn't, you know, local residents couldn't even go for a walk because the streets were so crowded. Yeah, well, that, that, that policing has certainly been a topic of conversation. I mean, you used to work as a police officer. What, I mean, what's... Do you think it's racist the way that the police the police force has been applied to this lockdown to this to this phase of the pandemic? Look, I, I don't I don't think it is. I, I, I don't think it is. Uh, I, I really don't. I don't. It's it's not that. But I mean, you, you've got to look at where the politicians live and where the powers of be live and where most of the money live and 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 most of the people who donate to these pol- their political parties live. They don't live out this way. They live on the eastern suburbs, so to subject them to harsher lockdowns than you know we would be in the west, it, it wouldn't be accepted as easily. Um, it, you know, but also we've got to look to look at culturally, and it's not it's. I don't think it's being racist. I think it, it's called profiling. You know, culturally, the the families and you know, the, the workers that work in hospitality, they live in big share houses. You know, it's often. Four, you know, four, five, six to a to a household. Um, whether that be flatmates, whether that be students, whether that be, you know, um, a, a family. Um, you know, uh, culturally as well. If you look at the Greeks, Italians, the Turks, the Lebanese, you know, um, the, the Asian communities, they don't believe in nursing homes. Uh, you know, it's not uh, what they do in their culture. So a lot of these elderly residents and their elderly parents either live with them or live close by and alone and are cared for by various family members. So uh, I can see why they need that, feel the need to, to, to lock it down. And yes, I guess we are probably more communal out this way and, and do visit and have larger family gatherings, um, you know, dare say it, probably more neighbourly as well, you know, because that's just a cultural thing. So I don't think it's being racist, you know, but I think, you know, there are certain cultures that do get out and mix and mingle a lot more than others, um, you know, I, I I hate it when the neighbours knock on my door, and <laughs> but, but I, you know, I'm I'm different. Yeah, you know, whereas what are they still knocking on your door though? No, no one knocks on my door. <laughs> <laughs> They've learnt. No, they're obeying lockdown. Yeah, I mean, you know, as a society, you know, Western society, we normally or more so we keep to ourselves. We don't meet, tend to mingle so much with, uh, with our neighbours. But if you travel throughout the world, you know, throughout the Middle East and, you know, where my family's from, from Turkey, a street is a family. You know, there might be different families, but one street will band together and they will, you know, they'll all look after each other. And, you know, you, you get that here in in, in, um, in certain areas of Sydney as well. So I don't think it's being racist, but I think it's, you know, they've, Obviously, the the data's come through. They're identifying that it's close family contacts and it's spreading to numerous households. So that means, you know, that the households are mingling and they need to try and do something about it. And, you know, speaking from an ex-cop point of view, it's the last thing the police want to be doing. They really, really do. And I feel for them. 
You know, it's one of those jobs that you're directed to do and you have to go, uh, you know, you get called to a complaint, you have to go to it. You don't have an option. If you detect an offence, then you have to either act on it or you know, use your discretion to an extent. Um, but, you know, it's like one of those things and, and it's tiring. It's, 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 I think it'd be grinding on the, on the police as well because you got to remember they're, they're, they're family people. They've got families. They've got you know, people they got to go home to, neighbourhoods they got to go home to as well. Yeah, of course. And, I mean, they don't want to go home with, with COVID and they don't want to go home having had a hard day and, yeah, it's a tough job for sure. Yeah, and people also got to remember too the police isn't white, blue collar, you know, uh, isn't, isn't white collar, uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, dominated anymore. It's a, it's a truly multicultural police force uh, with, with people from all denominations in there. So, you know, to call it a, a, a racist, I, I don't think that's true. But I think they're acting on, on the information and intelligence that's provided to them and that's that's where they allocate their resources. Yeah. Um, Attila, you mentioned to me earlier that you also had a bit of a cool room situation at the restaurant. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so we were looking at potentially doing some dinner packs and, um, you know, maybe delivering some things out to people and, um, Thursday, what was it? Thursday night, our cool room, just the compressor died. Uh, we'd put all our stock into one, into the cool room and shut all the other fridges down. So we had about two, two and a half grand worth of stock in there. That's not including the labor that went into, you know, so pickling and preserving stuff and all that other bits and pieces and smoke, lovely, you name it. So yeah, that was a big hit. Um, but you know, then I look and I go, well, maybe it was a bit of a, a bit of a sign not to do it because the weather hit us pretty hard here over the weekend. So you know, the reality was who was coming out, um, yeah, you know, who was going to take a drive out and come and pick up food from us anyway. So you know, it is what it is. I think uh, there's no more tears to cry, Danny. The, the well's dried up. Um, I'm a bit more positive this year than I am, you know, last year about the situation that we're in only because, you know, it's just there's only certain things you can control and there's no point beating yourself up about, you know, the things that you can't. So I'm trying to stay optimistic. Um, well, in your optimistic um, telescope, what do you – how do you see things panning out for for the city and for Pazar? You know, it took us so long to get back on track again and um, – to gain that customer confidence, um, it, it, it's. Uh, I think this time round, it's going to be a tougher road to recovery. I think people are going to be just that little bit more hesitant. I remember the mood when we first reopened, and the people were still cautious and, you know, really careful about what they're doing and sanitising and this and that. Um, and then you saw it slowly saw that kind of relax with the customers and it just went back to that old style of dining again. Um, the tough thing, and this is, this is the, the toughest thing, if we can't retain the staff that we have at the moment, and that goes for all businesses, it is going to be an absolute killer. Forget the pandemic and forget lockdowns last year. The hardest thing for me and for a lot of people I've been speaking to is the staff shortages and getting getting people back into hospitality. Um, and if you look at it, you know, we were all saying when this lockdown happened this, you know, a couple of weeks ago, really the lockdown was only for hospitality and the beauty, the beauty sector, you know, hairdressers, salons, 
they're the only, it was business as usual for everybody else. The streets were packed, the roads were packed, you know, people carpooling. So it really felt like we were just singled out. Now, getting people's confidence to come back into an industry and, you know, trying to tell them it's strong, we're going to be okay, we're going to thrive, only to be then thrown into another lockdown and these people be again left without money and support for now, you know, two, three weeks. Um, they've had nothing coming in. It it makes it hard. Like, how do you convince people it's a, it's a secure industry that you know you should take up a, an apprenticeship and become a chef? Because next time there's a a pandemic or a major disaster or whatever, the first people getting shut down is hospitality. It's so, it's a super hard sell, isn't it? It's a it's a really hard sell. Look, and I've got two young kids. You know, they're only eight and eleven. But my daughter came to me and said, "Oh, I want to get into hospitality industry." You know, when when I finish school, I'd be like, "No, uh, hell no, uh, <laughs> no, no." You, go, you get into uh, an, an essential service where that you know that if there's something when the world turns to shit, you're needed and you're wanted and you're valued. Um, because that, that, that's the reality. I think hospitality and, and, and a few other industries now are feeling when it's not valued and and doesn't matter what we contribute to the economy, it just seems like we're at the bottom of the pile and we'll just get shit on every time. Um, it's because there is no leadership and that's the big thing. There is no roadmap. There is you know, these words that they keep using. There's none of it. And I'm perplexed at how we can be 18 months into a pandemic and there isn't an emergency action plan already formulated for a worst case scenario, whether it be a pandemic or a natural disaster, they flick the switch on and say, this is what's happening. This is the relief that will be activated immediately. And this is what you can expect instead of just, you know, I've said it before and I consider myself Aussie. I'm a half Turkish. I was born here. I was raised here. I'm an Aussie. But our she'll be right attitude in this country is going to destroy us one day. It's not she'll be right. <laughs> you know, we we need to act and we need to react, um, and, and and it just doesn't seem to happen. Yeah, I think definitely you can sort of understand it as as a population that we felt like we dealt with a pandemic and it was it was done and could we just stop thinking about it now? But you would. I think um, that the the politicians and and the planners, the people who are responsible for uh, yeah keeping us all safe and on track and open, would have a plan that could be could, could swing into action. Of course, we know circumstances change and things need to be tweaked, but it is yeah it is you know how hard Victoria had to fight for federal support um, when we were locked down a few weeks ago. It just seemed ridiculous. It was and um, he was. Uh, our Premier Daniel Andrews said the other day, you know, it's not foreign aid, you know. It's like it's not like it's these other people that we're being called upon to help. Like it's just Australians helping the people that are here. Like it's um, it's not abstract. It's the people that are right in front of you. Yeah, right. And look, I, I'm not wise of international affairs and, and so forth, but if I think if we look back historically at some of our neighbouring countries that have needed support in, in the case of where they've had a natural disaster, I distinctly remember an action plan being put in place and, you know, resources being allocated immediately and planes immediately being loaded and, you know, things being sent off overseas within 24 to 48 hours of a disaster occurring. It just, I'm perplexed that when we have a disaster, and this is a disaster, 
you know, yeah, okay, there, there are the, the death toll isn't what it is, but this is a disaster economically. It's a disaster uh, mentally. Um, it, 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 it's a disaster emotionally for a lot of people. You know, it, and if you want the pulse and the heartbeat of the nation, you've got to stop saying things like it's not a race because you may as well end that, song, that, that sentence with she'll be right. Because and that's you know there's there's an old saying complacency kills. Um, it was something you, we were taught day in day out in the police. Complacency at the moment you're complacent is the moment you you could possibly die. And this is it. We've we've been we were lured into a a false sense of security. We became complacent. We thought, yeah, we've got this. She'll be right. And it's just not. Mm. Oh wow! I really feel for you, um, but. I'm glad to hear that even as you're going through the absolute hardest times that you are essentially optimistic and I hope that you can hang on to your staff and, yeah, just come out the other side of this. And, I mean, one thing we do know is that once people have that confidence, they are incredibly grateful and glad to come back to restaurants. So I hope that those days are not too far in the future for you, Attila, and for everyone in Sydney, especially in the West. Yeah, everywhere. I mean, we, we, we all need it. And, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm okay. And I'm just, I actually worry about some, some other people in this industry. I really do. I just know how hard they're doing it at the moment and how tough it is for them. Um, and some just have nothing left, you know, nothing left at all. Um, you know, as I said, we've got about five weeks um, that'll get us by, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, that is all we can do. Thank you so much for sharing with us again today on Dirty Linen. It's great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Danny. This is Dirty Linen, and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.